Engage Sessions. The NSR Media Network presents Sessions, bringing you behind the scenes and into the lives of your favorite music artists. And now, here's your host, Barry Davis. Well, if you are a fan of the cars, you have come to the right place because we have an in-depth conversation this week with author Joe Milliken, who wrote a book, the only real book that I know on Benjamin Orr, called Let's Go, Benjamin Orr in the Cars. And we're going to delve into the life of Benjamin Orr and, and get into a lot of discussion about the cars themselves. And knowing that you and I are in a Cars tribute band, this means a little extra something to us. Yeah, it's it's so amazing to hear it, you know, right from right from Joe, who's so well researched and has, has done written this amazing book. Really brings it home the awesome music we get to play with this band. Absolutely. So we will talk to Joe Milliken on this week's episode of the show. But up next, live music. It's hard to find, but when you find it. By God, it's awesome. There's Tom <laughs> Forth. I'm Barry Davis. This is Sessions. Tom, live music is very hard to find these days, but thanks to a couple of people that made it happen over the weekend, both Ed Sousa and Herb Braley, there was a show that went on that you and I both were fortunate enough to attend in Hamilton featuring Gord and Sandy from The Spoons. Mm -hmm. uh, Derek uh, was there from Images in Vogue yep. on the drums. Then you had Peter Nunn from Honeymoon Suite on the keys. And then there were a couple of horn players there. And there was another singer. See, Derek Giles has a band called the Chameleons. And they usually do a lot of touring. At this time of year, they would be in the Dominican Republic. Yeah. And they're just a great band playing a lot of, you know, 60s and 70s covers. And the horn players are just mind-boggling good. Yeah, out of this world. Two saxophone players. And so basically the way the night went, there was, there was 50 people. That was all they allowed in. We were all socially distanced, wearing masks other than when we were taking our drinks, right? Mm -hmm. And the stage was there. They had the plexiglass in front of each singer. So we were, you know, doing everything we can to keep it safe. All the rules were being followed. Yep. And the Chameleons did, did a set, and then Gordon Sandy come up, start playing some Spoon songs, and they had no idea that these sax players were just going to start jamming in. Yeah. <laughs> and without rehearsing with them, that's what you, what you heard off the top was... Just this phenomenal sound. And I think that's what really went into making the night as special as it was. Because, you know, it, it wasn't necessarily a 100% rehearsed performance. There was that atmosphere, a little bit of fun, a little bit of off the seat of the pants, yeah, right? A little bit raw. of let's see how this goes. It was raw. But my God, were all the players so good. And just to, just to witness just those people coming together and, and making such special music, it yeah. was an absolute privilege. And I'll tell you what. We need to be as safe as we can. We need to make sure that this thing doesn't, you know, turn into another huge outbreak and people are not getting sick. But on the other side of the coin, we need live music. Mm -hmm. We need to be able to, 
hear music. We need to allow musicians to have this platform to perform. And while I'm fortunate enough to have another job, you do some teaching on the side, mm -hmm. but we know many musicians, and the only thing they have in life is making live music. That's their bread and butter, and that's been taken away. And I really, really hope that we can find ways of making live venues open up to, to music in a safe way. You know, I think at some point in time we're going to have to. It is such music... You, it's been hard enough for musicians over the last 15 years, 20 years even, you know, since <clears throat> Napster and since, you know, downloadable music. It's been really hard to make a living for the people that create this wonderful stuff. And COVID, yet yeah, COVID has taken what was already really hard and made it next to impossible. And, you know, to the point where we don't know what the future is going to look like for, for performing. And I'll tell you, though, the show this weekend... Um, I saw more courtesy and more safety than I do at any trip to a grocery store. Tom, we had to get our temperatures checked. Yes, we did. As we entered yep. the, the venue. But so people, people, were, people were giving each other space. You know what? It seemed like a whole group of people that really wanted this to be successful, yes. that really enjoyed it, and, and that were unbelievably respectful and careful and, and you know, really trying to find the right way forward to do this safely because we need to. We are spending so much time and we're hearing so much in the news about get-togethers that lead to COVID cases. What we're not hearing about are the get-togethers that do not lead to COVID cases. Mm -hmm. So maybe we need to start focusing on the safe get-togethers and, and figure out what they're doing to make it safe, to make sure that there aren't huge outbreaks, and use that as our tool to move forward. Because again, I don't know if COVID's going anywhere anytime soon whether or not we're going to have a vaccine anytime soon. So we close everything down. We let the numbers settle down. Then they open things back up, and then the numbers will go back up. Can we keep doing this forever and ever, where we're just going to keep closing it down every time the numbers go back up? And again, I'm not trying to say we can't be safe. right? I don't want to get into that whole thing, because I am. I'm a mask wearer. I want to be safe. But we have to find a way to live our lives as well. And shutting down for... Uh, a month, two months, six months, I mean, whatever it took to get to where we are now. But at some point, we're going to have to say, okay, we need to learn how to live a safe way, but still have a life. Yeah, that's what was so good about, you know, about that night, about a lot of the different things that the Spoons have been up to. We've spoken about on this program before. Um, you know, outdoor gigs, you know, off the wall sort of situations, just different ways about bringing your music to an audience. And it, it's amazing to see, um, you know, it's amazing to see people trying new things. It's amazing to have people like like Ed and um, Herb and Herb yeah. that are, you know, doing their best to bring music to people. Because I'll tell you, it was so appreciated by every person in that audience. It was appreciated by me. It was appreciated by you. Yep. At, at a level I don't think we would have thought possible seven months ago. That's true. You know, That's true. It, and we're getting to the point now where it's going to be too cold soon to be doing those outdoor virtual shows. Mm -hmm. And if we can find a way to do it indoors, you take a big venue, you space out the people, you figure a way to do like they did in Hamilton, and hopefully we don't hear of any any of us who were there picking up COVID. And if we don't, that's great news, and we figure out how to do that again somewhere else. So yep. there we go. All right, we've got a very lengthy conversation coming up with a man 
who wrote an incredible book on an incredible musician. Before we get to that, let's hear from that incredible musician and one of the most incredible voices you'll ever hear. Who's gonna hang it up when you call? Who's gonna pay attention to your dreams? Yeah, who's gonna plug their ears when you? The incredible voice of Benjamin Orr singing Drive and uh, probably one of the most iconic songs that Benjamin Orr sung as a member of the Cars. And joining us now is a gentleman who has written a phenomenal book on Benjamin Orr. I can't even say Benjamin Orr Benjamin today. Benjamin Orr. Benjamin uh, <laughs> I've read the book. You've read the book, Tom. And we're encouraging anybody who's a Cars fan to read this book. Joe Milliken joins us on the line now. Joe First of all, thanks for doing this. And right off the top, I can't believe it's 20 years. I mean, it just kind of passed the the quote-unquote anniversary. And I've said this before. I don't like using the term anniversary when it's something sad like this. But 20 years since Ben's been gone. Hard to believe, huh? Yeah. Hi, Barry. Hi, Tom. It's um, really great to be here with you guys. Um, I really appreciate you uh, having me on your show. And, yeah, it, it is hard to believe that it's been 20 years um, since Ben's passing. And, uh, you know, the incredible thing about it, though, is here we are still talking about the man to this day. And, you know, the uh, people, some, I think people sometimes may forget that, you know, the band hasn't been around. I mean, they broke up in 1987. That's a long time ago. And here we are still talking about the band. Um, they're still in the um, current pop culture. You hear their songs on the radio. You hear their songs on TV commercials, and, you know, I think that's sort of a testament as to, you know, how much of an influence they had on pop culture in general that all these years later, um, here we are still talking about how great of a band and how amazing a musician Ben was. So you got to try to spin it and make it a positive, right? <laughs> Absolutely. When you look back at the Cars discography, I think one of the things that surprises people the most is, this is a band that only had, I think, what, seven studio albums during their time as a whole with that band. And kind of like The Police, not a lot of material, but it was all so good. You don't often see a band get into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame with such a limited number of albums out. You're right, and that ties right into what I was just saying, um, how influential they are and still are. And um, it's almost like, a, I mean, not that I'm comparing them to the Beatles. You don't compare anybody to the Beatles. But in that type of context, I mean, they were literally the cars from 1978 to 1987. I mean, that's not even a decade. And the influence they created, and like you just said, you know, only, I, I'm not going to count on six or seven studio albums, never did a live album, um, an official live album, and that you're right, that's not a lot of music. And, you know, they just created such a, an influence in pop culture that it is amazing when you really look at it and go, wow, these guys weren't really around that long, and look what they did. It's, um, it's pretty amazing for sure. 
Yeah, I found the the one thing for me that really stood about the Cars is just how how wide ranging their music is in terms of who it appeals to. You know, in in the eighties, late seventies, early eighties, like that music was such a segregated thing. There were so many different genres, and you know, everybody was kind of picking their holes and. The Cars were a band that really never did that. They they kind of rode on that new wave, but straight into pop, straight into rock. There's punk. Hillbilly, there's <laughs> punk. They throw a little bit of everything out at you. And when I think of the Cars, that's that's kind of what strikes me. You know, we are talking about them 20 years after Benjamin Orr's death, and 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 even longer than that since they played last. Uh, that would be what I would think is the first thing that strikes me is why you know, why they have such appeal. Is there anything, I mean, you've obviously have done a, a tremendous amount of work looking into the band. Is there anything that you would say, you know, above and beyond the genre thing that makes them such a, a an unbelievable, long-lasting band with such impact? I, I think, um, I think the unique thing about the cars is that, and you were sort of touching upon it in what you just said, um, you can't really pigeonhole them into a certain genre. They're, you know, they were considered, I mean, I think calling them a punk band might be a stretch, but <laughs> they were called that at the beginning yeah. because they were tied into um, the famous um, punk club in Boston, The Rat, and that's called The Rat, The Rat Skeller, and that's where they kind of started um, gaining popularity, and at the time that was a punk club. And they were about the only band that was playing there at the time that really wasn't punk music. But so they kind of got that punk label. Um, they're considered a rock band. Um, they're considered a pop band. New wave. You know, some people think say they actually kind of started new wave. Mm -hmm. um, so they're like it's like a, they're a little bit of all of these things rolled into one. And I think that's what makes them sound so unique. I mean, when a car song comes on the radio you automatically know it's the cars. Um, I, I think that just, you know, they don't sound like anybody else. Um, they are so unique onto themselves, and I think it's just a combination of all of those types of genres kind of all mixed together, and I think that's what makes them so appealing to everybody, that you can't pigeonhole their sound. They're just a little bit of everything. <laughs> yeah, you know, Joe, I'm going to kind of piggyback on what you just said and follow it up by saying, Nobody sounded like them before the cars were around. But then, you know, years later, you've seen so many bands influenced by them. I mean, you listen to some of the stuff by the Killers, and I'm like, oh, yeah, they were huge Cars fans. And I know that uh, the lead singer from the Killers actually spoke at, uh, at the memorial service for Ben or at the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, I think it was, when they were inducted. So obviously, yeah. you, you could tell all these different bands that have come out, and you're like, oh, yeah, there's a little bit of Cars in what they do, but nothing was before. So it makes you wonder, how did the Cars put this sound together? And I'm a huge Beatles guy. I'm a huge Beatles historian, I guess, and I know that they spent so much time in their early days trying to come up with what is the next sound. And without even really knowing it, they created this new sound. And with the cars, I have a feeling it was a similar type of thing that, you know, when these four guys got together or five guys got together and started making music, this is just how it sounded. Yeah, you know, they they weren't one of those bands that just kind of came together and it came to them easily and bang, they got a record deal. Um, they toiled for a long time on the road. 
um, especially Rick and Ben. I mean, Rick and Ben, they were on the road together in various different forms of their band for almost a decade before they ended up in Boston and actually did become the Cars. Um, they did some kind of psychedelic rock-sounding stuff when they first got together, and then in the very early 70s when, you know, the folky... Oh, man, I, <laughs> I heard that stuff. That's huge. bizarre. Yeah. Yeah, they were a folk <laughs> duo <laughs> when they first got into Boston. They didn't even have a band for a while. It was just the two of them. Um, so they went through this whole folk thing, and then, you know, the, the band before the Cars, they were called Cat and Swing, and that was kind of a jazzy, steely Dan kind of sounding band. And that stuff is really good. It was never officially released. Um, but I've heard Captain Swing songs. I mean, you can Google them and find songs. And it was it was really cool sounding stuff. It, they were like they were like a kind of a little more rockin' version of Steely Dan. Um, and they did all these different types of things until they finally. And and Rick was. Um, <laughs> Rick would write his songs and try to find people to fit that band and that sound. It wasn't, I'm going to gather all these five guys and we're going to create a sound together. He was writing his songs and then finding different people to bring in to play those songs. So it all pivoted off of his songs, which I would feel like is kind of the opposite of what people do. You find a whole bunch of guys that you get along with good and you want to be in a band together and then you write the music. Well, he kind of went about it the other way. And that's why he had so many different people coming in and out of his bands over the years. Ben was really the only one that he kept with him the whole time for obvious reasons. Um, incredible vocalist and very versatile musician, good-looking guy, got that rock star personality. Ben was really the only one that survived all of his early bands because he just kept, for lack of a better way of saying it, booting out musicians and bringing new ones in and writing songs and then when those songs didn't catch fire he'd scrap them all and write a whole bunch of new ones and it was all revolved around his songs so i think i don't know i don't want to say by mistake but their music just kind of evolved over time or rick's songs kind of evolved over time and it eventually turned into the cars pretty pretty amazing way of going about it if you ask me <laughs> It is. It, and the one thing that really struck me when I was reading uh, through the book was those early years and, and the struggle that the, that the two of them went through. And, you know, it, it's, it's astonishing, I think, for musicians today to see, you know, yeah, it, it, it sucked being on the road, but, but we're living in a time right now where that life isn't really possible. Yeah. We and, wish we could be on the road. Yeah, and and so like, <laughs> I'm, I'm sure you do. <laughs> you know that that you know B Benjamin Orr and 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 Rick, you know, going back to the drawing board and you know working with different musicians over a period of years and trying different things and always kind of being, you know, they had some Joe jobs and stuff in between, but they were always able to gig and they were always able to, you know, to get up in, in front of people and play their music. Um, you know, do you see? anything down in the states right now like sort of a resurgence of that sort of a culture where live music i mean obviously before covid yeah but in in canada it's it's hurting times for live music even before covid even before covid yeah. it was really hurting times and the opportunities for bands even just to get in front of people and play for free are getting fewer and far further between how are things down in the, in, in the states in the sort of 
the uh, the birthplace of this, especially curve. Boston, right? I, yeah. And I know, and I, Joe, Joe, I used to travel to Boston a lot when I traveled with the Blue Jays, and you know, through the late '90s, early 2000s, right around Fenway Park, there was just a ton of great live music clubs, and they're all gone now. Boston has always been such a musical town, a hub of music. Um, if you will, kind of pun there, Boston being called the hub. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, it, it was always um, an eclectic mix of music, and that is really one of the main reason why Rick and Ben ended up in Boston, because they were, you know, I said how I mentioned how they were toiling around, you know, the Midwest all these years trying to, to make it. Um, they were in Ohio and Michigan and, you know, pretty much in the Midwest, and that and that is what prompted Rick to go to Boston because he knew that it was a college town and he knew that there were a whole bunch of opportunities and little clubs and all the colleges where the band could play. And, you know, as you read, if you can remember or recall from the book, Ben, I mean, Rick went to Boston first and said, Ben, I'm going to Boston. Come with me. And it was at a time where Ben was having a rough time in his life because he had just lost his dad and he wanted to stay in the Ohio area with his mom and kind of help her regroup. So he said, I'm not going to go. Um, so Rick went off to Boston by himself and kept in touch with Ben, you know, calling him all the time saying, I'm here, I'm established. You got to come, you got to come. And then finally, when, you know, Ben felt comfortable that his mom was feeling okay and settled, then he went to Boston. So Boston is what, you know, because it's such a hub of music, that is what drew Rick um, to Boston. And, you know, it's, I don't want to turn this into a negative thing, but, you know, everybody knows what's going on with this whole COVID situation. But um, I tell you, it's going to be tough for music to come back from this whenever things get back to normal or whatever the new normal is going to be whenever we get there. Um, I'm in Vermont, which is about, uh, two and a half hours north of Boston. So it's a much more rural area. But even where I live, you know, there's a whole bunch of little clubs where local clubs and bars where local bands can play. And it's pretty much all shut. It's all shut down right now. Mm. Um, I, I'm, I'm just trying to think off the top of my head. I can't remember the last time I saw live music. <laughs> oh, I couldn't tell even tell it. you how many, how many months it's been. Mm -hmm. Um, so things are pretty rough right now, but hopefully, uh, you know, the old saying, music never dies. So people will keep listening in their homes and listening to the radio, and hopefully we'll find our way back to whatever the new normal is going to be, and uh, we can start enjoying some live music again. And I know you guys are wanting that to happen, oh. too, be seeing as though you're both in a band. Exactly, <laughs> exactly. You know, going back to, you know, the humble beginnings for the cars, and for those that are a bit younger and, and you know, grew up in the digital era, they have no idea what it what a band went through to get noticed and whether it be, you know, delivering your cassettes to every, you know, radio station and every music A&R person around to, you know, trying to to play showcases to get noticed or whatever the case may be. But, you know, the cars really were fortunate that there was a radio station in Boston that loved what they were doing, and before they had even gone in with a proper producer and made themselves a proper album, I mean, those demos were being played on the air, on the radio, and Joe, that really was was like the the birth 
of the cars and and the real beginning of what turned out to be this this magical band but you have to wonder about had that break not happened had they not gotten that guy to put the needle down and and, and play just what i needed on the on the radio you know you know not not to say they weren't going to make it but it would have been a completely different story oh that's true and who knows how long it would have taken them or would it have even happened at all you know, as we all know, there's a whole bunch of wonderful, incredible, talented bands that never become famous simply because they don't get that one lucky break mm-hmm. that you need. I've heard a lot of music in a lot of bands. I've heard local bands in my area go, and I'd sit there and go, how are these guys not known? How do these guys not have a record deal? They're incredible. So a lot of it is luck, and you're right. Um, the woman DJ, her name is Maxanne Sartori, and she's pretty famous, um, especially in the Boston area. She was on WBCN, which is, um, you know, probably the biggest rock station Boston's ever had. And she went to a club one night and saw them as Captain Swing, which was before the cars. And that was back in the day when DJs didn't have to follow a certain formula. Here's the format. Play this, play this, play this, play this. They could actually play what they wanted to play as well so she took their demos and she put their demos on the air so they actually got their songs on one of the biggest rock stations in the country before they were even the cars when they were still cat and swing and that sort of helped them and launched them um but yeah the band went through so much they um i talked to um their original i interviewed their original uh manager um before they became the cars his name was alan kaufman and um, he tells he told me stories and some of them off the record um, about some of the stuff that they had to go through to try to get their name. I mean, they were playing. I mean, it was great that you could play every night, but they were playing five, six nights a week for pennies, um, living off um, goldfish crackers. <laughs> you know, that was their meals. Um, you know, going to colleges and you know printing up their own flyers and posting them all over the place and the whole word of mouth kind of thing. And they went through a whole lot. Um, and like you just said, they, they happened to get that lucky break and um, an influential DJ happened to like their music and put it on the air for them. She also helped discover Aerosmith. Um, she also helped discover Billy Squire. So she did that for a few bands. And lucky for all of us, the cars happened to be one of them. <laughs> no kidding. You know, the one question I did have... Um, you know, in our band, in our Cars cover band, I'm I'm the bass player, but Barry does the lion's share of the singing. He is our front guy. Um, but when I look at the Cars, it strikes me that they didn't really have a front guy. And the one thing that shocked me is, you know, when when Rick passed away last year, um, there was so much media around it. And even when I first started playing in this band, I had no idea that that voice behind Drive was was Benjamin Orr. I didn't. And that's know. your age, because if you were around during the yeah. video era, but. Yeah, I mean, and I know for me personally, I've, following the cars since the beginning, Joe, a, a song like uh, It's Not the Night, when I realized that, oh, my God, they're both singing in that song. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't until I saw a live video, and, and because their voices were so similar, yeah, it's just, it was frightening how similar they were. Well, if, I would just love you to speak a little bit to the dynamic between the two of them, because, you know, very clearly they didn't really have... A front guy like Rick. Rick was sort of the face of the band out front, but it just amazes me that in the '80s, and you know, as image obsessed as they were, that it wasn't Benjamin or 
plastered all over everywhere because he had the looks, right? He had the style. He had that charisma. And the voice. And he had the voice. Yeah, why do you think it, that is, Joe? Well, I tell you, Rick was a very unique... And I know you just said they didn't really have a front man. And, you know, that that's true um, because, you know, if you look at them on the stage, Ben and Rick are both sort of up front, if you will. And neither of them were, had their, you know, had their mics set up in the center of the mm -hmm. stage. They were both kind of spread out in front, if you will. And I think, you know, let's face it. Um, and if you read the book, you'll, you'll see that, you know, it, it really was Rick's band. Um, but he didn't, he didn't come off that way. I mean, I, when I say it was his band, he was the main songwriter. He wrote all of those lyrics. I mean, when they would go into the studio to record, you know, the other guys in the band were allowed to put their two cents in as far as the music goes. So I'm not saying that the songs were all completely, you know, created by Rick, mm -hmm. but he did write all the lyrics. Um, so he kind of was the leader of the band. But when they went on stage, he didn't come off that way because he knew the talent that Ben had, you know, the looks, the rock star attitude, the incredible voice. Um, something that I thought was really cool when I was writing this book and I learned this um, was that when Rick would write songs and he didn't have in mind who was going to sing. He wouldn't say, I'm writing a song and I'm going to sing this or I'm going to write a song for Ben to sing. He honestly didn't know who was going to end up singing each song. He would write the songs, bring them into the studio, and they would both take a go at it. And they would both sing it because there's unreleased tracks of Rick singing songs that actually Ben sang on the album and vice versa. I'd love to hear those. So, mm -hmm. Yeah. So he would actually not dictate who was going to sing the song. He would write the song. He would bring it in. They would both take a crack at it. And I'm sure they'd both look at each other and go, yeah, that one's yours. Or, yeah, I think you should do this one. And that's how they did it. So even though he was kind of a dictator in the fact that he was the leader of the band and the main songwriter, he didn't allow his ego to completely take control, if you will. He knew what he had in Ben, and he would just kind of write the songs and bring them in, and they would both give it a go and kind of look at each other and give a nod, and this one's yours, and that's kind of how they went about it. So really cool and creative the way they did that, I think. Yeah, absolutely. And you know... Without George Martin, we we wouldn't have the Beatles the way we know the Beatles. And and Lennon and McCartney, you know, the most prolific songwriters of all time. But George Martin was so instrumental in the early days, especially of cultivating the sound that the Beatles had. I think in some ways you can say the same thing about Roy Thomas Baker, who produced their first album. And when you listen back now and you hear the layered harmonies and you hear so much that sounds so much like the you know the earlier Queen albums, you can totally see that that Roy put his stamp on the band. First, I want you to, to kind of comment on that. And secondly, I'd love it if you shared the, the incredible story about how he finally discovered them on that snowy night when there were very few people that went to see this band. Yeah, that must have been something else. Yeah, hmm. you know, he said it as, you know, he went into this club and there was like 50 people there tops, but the band still played like they were in Madison Square Garden, you know. Didn't matter how many people were there. They could have been playing for five people and they still would have done the same type of show and put their heart into it. Um, yeah, I think Roy Thomas Baker was a pretty unique... I mean, that the record company chose 
Roy Thomas Baker. You know, because when you're a struggling band trying to make it, you know, you, you don't necessarily get to say who you want to produce. The record company says, this guy's going to produce you. And you go, okay. <laughs> um, but the band was kind of scared or surprised that they had chosen Roy Thomas Baker. And they didn't really, they weren't too confident. They didn't really know how it was going to go because, you know, they would listen to those Queen albums and like hear those layered vocals. And they didn't really think it was a good match at first. But then obviously once they got in there um, and, you know, uh, RTB put his magic touch on the band, they, they pretty much knew right away once they started working with him that it was going to work. And obviously he produced all their albums until the last two. Um, so he really did put a stamp on the band. The funny thing is um, they, the, the band knew who he was. Um, and the one thing they thought that might be able to give them a chance to work well with him wasn't doing Queen records. They liked what he did with the band Zombies, um, which is an old, you know, late 60s band. Oh, they love the, the Zombies. Music. Love the Zombies. Yeah, they love the music that he produced with the Zombies, and that's what made them think, well, maybe it can work. I love this band. I'm not saying they didn't like Queen, but Queen is obviously a a much different style than, than the cars were. So they were a little nervous about having Roy Thomas Baker be their producer, but obviously it worked out pretty well. <laughs> I think Tom and I can both attest to this in the fact, as great as those harmonies sound on record, they are not easy to replicate live, uh, especially when you have as many voices as they did on those records. Now, this day and age, it's a little bit easier to pull off. But back in the day... Um, and I know the cars took some criticism for their overall live performances as far as, you know, being able to, to nail all those harmonies and such. But when you consider the times, especially some of those, uh, you know, late seventies, early eighties, uh, videos when they were on that TV show, I, uh, I forget what that, uh, midnight special or whatever that midnight they were on special, quite yeah. often. I, I thought they did an admirable job considering what they had to deal with. And they didn't have the luxury of the technology we have today. Yeah, you're right. Um, you know, they do get a little bit of criticism for their live performances, but I don't necessarily think it's because of the sound of the live performances. Um, they are kind of accused of being sort of mechanical on stage, if you will. Mm -hmm. They weren't exactly, you know, they weren't flamboyant and jumping around and, you know, all dealing with trying to create all the theatrics. They They went out there. They took their music seriously and they concentrated on the music. Um, and I think, um, I think they were able to pull off those harmonies live pretty well. Um, you're right, and considering the time and technology wasn't as great, but, you know, when you also have, I mean, all of them were singing except for David behind the drums. So, you know, when you have Greg and Elliot also contributing to background vocals, um, I think that helped, you know, create that layered effect. And, and you're right, they did a pretty good job of recreating it, considering the times, for sure. <clears throat> when you look at, you know, through the years, as far as, you know, the sound of the albums changing, and, you know, Benjamin Orr getting the opportunity to sing a number of their hits, why do you think it is that the Rick-Benjamin relationship worked for as long as it did without Benjamin saying, well, hell, I've got a great voice. I can play the bass. I can play the guitar. 
And I think I'm a pretty good songwriter in my in my own right, maybe not a, a Rick Ocasek style. But why do you think he was able to kind of sit back and say, all right, Rick, you just keep writing the songs and I'll sing hits. And on the other side, Rick's saying, hey, I'm going to write these songs, but you can, you know, I'm going to give you songs that could potentially become huge hits and you're going to become, you know, the big star. But again, as, as Tom said, Rick still managed to be the star of the band even though many of their biggest hits were sung by Ben. Now, in 2020, that probably wouldn't be as possible because we see everything. But it wasn't until mm. the video era came in, in in kind of the mid-'80s that we started to see that, oh, Benjamin is singing. But, again, you think of Just What I Needed, and you think of... Uh, uh, now my mind is is just, just blanking. Uh, Let's, go. Let's Go. Some of those early songs... Right. There weren't, there were no MTV videos really of those songs. When you think of the video for "Touch and Go" and uh, "Shake It Up," and then of course you know "Magic," and you might think those were all the Rick songs, right? So kind of adds to that. But kind of getting back to my very long-winded question: Why did it? Why did it work as long as it did with these two guys? You know, I think it, this is a simple answer, but I, I think it comes down to the respect that they had for each other's talents. You know, you, you remember they were together for so long and went through so many struggles and stayed together through thick and thin, um, no matter how bad things got, no matter how many times uh, Rick threw a bunch of songs away and started new ones and kicked guys out of the band and brought in new guys. I mentioned before that Ben always stuck around and they stuck it out together for so long. I think they realized that they needed each other. You know, Ben looks at Rick and I, I don't sing drive. If, if Rick doesn't write it, I don't sing. Let's go. If Rick doesn't write it or, you know, all the songs that Ben did. So I think he looked at Rick and said, this guy's got the magic touch as far as writing songs. So why would I mess with that? I'm just going to, take these incredible lyrics and I'm going to use my incredible voice and I'm going to do it. And I think on the other hand, you know, Rick thought the same thing. I've got this incredibly good looking, charismatic rock star guy who can play anything. I mean, I know he pretty much, he just played the bass with the cars, but mm -hmm. as you read in the book, he started out as a drummer. Um, the first band he fronted when he was 17 years old, the grasshoppers, he was the rhythm guitar player. Um, so, here, you know, Rick looked at Ben, and here's this amazing guy who can play anything. He's a down-to-earth guy. He'll, he'll do whatever the band needs. He's got an amazing voice. I mean, for me, and I mean, I know I might be a little biased because I, I wrote the book about the guy, but <laughs> to me, he's got one of the greatest rock voices ever. I mean, for Agreed. me, he's right, up, he's right up there with, you know, uh, Paul Rogers, A Bad Company, you know, Paul McCartney, David Bowie. I mean, I think Ben is right there with those guys as far as vocals go. So I think Rick looked at him and said, you know, how can I not utilize this guy's talents as, as much as I can? So I really think it came down to these guys looking at each other saying, you know, we finally made it, and it's because of the both of us. It's not just me. It's not just you. It's, it's us together and blending our talents. So I, I really think it comes down to the respect that they had for each other. And I think that's what made it work for so long. 
Yeah, you know, the picture that you paint, uh, you paint in the book, and, and we're painting in kind of in this interview, is that sort of magical conglomeration of just the right people at just the right times and those pushes in just the right direction. Um, I'd like to change things up. Rather than talking specifically about the band members for a second, there was a question that I, that I really wanted to ask. Actually, both of you, because I never asked Barry when I was preparing for this interview. Um, and I know what my answer to this question is. I'll start. I, I want to know for the two of you gentlemen, what's your favorite Cars tune? So and, and, hard for me to and, answer that. And why? I know for me, it just depends on the mood I'm in or the day that it is, but it changes all the time. I don't know about you, Joe, but there are days, you know, I'll wake up and I'm like, hmm. Uh, so today my favorite song is is going to be, you know, Let's Go or, you know, for me, the one, Let's Go was the song that I first really, you know, I was 10 years old when it came out and it really hit me. And I went, I love this song. And then um, the follow-up single that that came out, and that just like I'm going through old man syndrome here. <laughs> you know, it's all I can do. Uh, when I heard oh, it's yeah. all I can do, it's just like oh, I love that. But then there are days I wake up and it's like I want to hear all mixed up. I could just listen to all mixed up all day long. How about you, Joe? Right. Do you have a, a favorite, or does it fluctuate with two? No, I do have a favorite, and I'm going to cheat a little bit. <laughs> For me. It is the last three songs on their debut album, um, Bye Bye Love, mm -hmm. Into Moving in Stereo, yep. and All Mixed Up. Because for me, those three songs blended together is like one song for me. And I mean, in the beginning, the one other song at the beginning um, of that side two is You're All I've Got Tonight. Mm -hmm. So those four songs in a row. But for me, Bye Bye Love, Moving in Stereo, All Mixed Up. And the way they segue, there's really no break in between the songs. The, all three songs just kind of flow together. And to me, it's one long song. I, if I hear one of those songs separately on the radio, it really doesn't feel right to me. I can honestly I say agree. that. Yeah, yeah. And you know so something? All three... Yeah. All three of those songs blended together is like one song for me. So, like I said, nice. I'm cheating a little bit. It's actually three songs, but that is the that's the one movement for me that is my all-time favorite car stuff. No, I love that and I love the sentiment behind that. Because yeah, you've got to be a certain generation to remember that, you know, when the one song ended, your brain's expecting that next song, right? And you well, know, nowadays people just put out singles, single, single, single. Right? Mm -hmm. The album is is really the not albums, a yeah, yeah. It's a kind of a, a a dying thing, unfortunately. And again, then you got to look back to you know how instrumental Roy Thomas Baker was getting together with the guys and saying this is the order. And I've talked to to bands that released albums back when albums were a thing, mm -hmm. Joe. And they always say one of the things that was the hardest thing to do was not necessarily getting the mix right or getting this level right or get it was. How are we going to order these songs on the album so they make sense? Mm -hmm. Right. You know, Roy Thomas Baker is known as saying that how I, how I just mentioned that those songs like kind of blend together with segues and there's no real break in between. He, he kind of purposely did that. And, he, and not in my book, but he has been quoted as saying that in those days when DJs were just putting the needle on the record, that somehow, sometimes they kind of got lost and didn't realize a song was ending. Yeah. So they ended up playing two or three songs in a row without even realizing it. That's awesome. <laughs> but Roy That's... Thomas Baker said, we ended up having three songs played in a row yeah. when it really should have just been one. Yeah. 
<laughs> Absolutely. So there was a, there was a method to his madness, that's for sure. And no coincidence that those three songs were all sung by Ben, right? Yeah. Oh yeah. And Bye Bye um, Bye Love is my favorite. I didn't get in there with mine, but Bye Bye Love is my yeah. favorite cartoon by far. And you know, we talked about the magic between these two guys, and I think it's a testament to how well these two were as a team that when both Rick and Benjamin put out solo albums, there wasn't that big, like, you know, Don Henley had this huge solo career when he left the Eagles, right? Lennon and McCartney and even George Harrison had huge solo albums. Yeah. But, I mean, Rick had a minor hit with Emotion in Motion, right? But there was not the big solo careers from either of these guys, and it's not to say that they were not good standalone musicians, but the magic between the two of them was missing. And if I'm not mistaken, uh, on Ben's album, you know, uh, he used guys, I think David Robinson played on some of the stuff, and I think that you know Rick used some of the guys on, on his stuff. So it wasn't like there weren't members of the Cars, but there wasn't Ben and Rick together. You're right. Um, and, and by no means am I saying that their solo stuff um, was not good music, because it was. Um, and, you know, Rick, I, can't, I don't even know how many, but I, he, he might have done four or five solo albums. Um, but it almost seems to me like he was just sort of bridging the gap in between working with the Cars. Okay, we did it. The Cars finish an album. They do a tour. Going to take a break for a while. What am I going to do? I'm going to produce some other bands. I'm going to do a solo album. As a matter of fact, Ben is quoted as saying that he wasn't even thinking about doing a solo album. The thought never really crossed his mind. Electra approached him and said, do you want to do a solo record? And Ben <laughs> kind of looked around and went, eh, well, I guess so. <laughs> Probably was sitting on, <laughs> sitting on a bunch of songs for years. Yeah, yeah. Brent, ben, ben admits that he was not... Um, Writing lyrics was not his forte, and I've talked to people that he grew up with. You know, he he was always writing songs and writing stuff, but lyrics didn't come to him as easily as it did for Rick. Um, he was Ben could write, you know, Ben would write melodies and stuff and create songs, um, but lyrics wasn't his forte, and he wasn't necessarily really comfortable with words, and that's part of the reason why Diane Page, who um was his partner at the time throughout the 80s. Um, she she co-wrote the album, the solo album with him. And she would do a lot of the lyrics and sort of, they wrote the lyrics together, but she helped him in that regard. Um, so, and Ben, you know, has admitted that, you know, writing lyrics wasn't exactly his forte. And like I just said, you know, he wasn't even really considering doing a solo album. The record company approached him and said, well, I might as well take advantage of the opportunity. So he did it. Um, so, but you're right. Going back to what you originally said, um, by no means would I ever say that their solo music was not good. Um, but you're right. I don't think it ever captured the magic that they they had with the Cars. Um, I, I think there's no comparison for sure. Joe, well, Rick went on to to do a lot of producing after the Cars. Uh, Ben's life was not something that was as as publicly documented. Let's talk a little bit about. Benjamin Orr's life post cars and and you know unfortunately it wasn't as long as we would have all liked it to be but what was what was Ben doing what was happening in his life after door to door came out and and honestly now I listen to door to door and I'm like this is such a good album but heartbeat city was their sergeant pepper right at that time and it was so hard to top it 
I think that it, it sounds so much better now that I listen to it. But that's another story for another day. Um, you can comment on that if you want to. But uh, what became of Ben after the cars? Well, you know, I mean, without trying to turn this into a negative thing, but, you know, after Door to Door came out, you know, the cars broke up. And if you're breaking up, that means things aren't good in the band. You know, it's just the way it is. And uh, I tried, um, obviously, it's part of their history, so I talk about it a little bit in the book, but I really didn't want it to become a prominent thing. I wanted this book to be a positive thing, a positive spin all the way around. So I didn't talk too much about the end of the cars. Um, although Door to Door is a good album, I don't think it compares to the rest of the catalog. Um, I think it's kind of fractured in a way. Well, and, there were um, a lot of old songs that they kind of got back. So I, I, you, you kind of get the feeling that it was near the end of their thing and they needed to put an album out and they probably didn't have yeah. the material that they wanted to have. I, that's just yeah, me. There's a, couple song, there's a couple songs on there they, that they brought back from way back when before they even got a record deal and they kind of re-recorded them. It's almost like they were just kind of filling out the album. Mm. Um, but, you know, so obviously there were some problems going on when the band broke up. And, you know, we've talked in this interview about how much of a rock star Ben was. You know, this handsome, charismatic guy dressed to the nines on stage. Um, but, you know, I, I, I describe it as, you know, Ben kind of had two personas. You know, he sort of flipped the switch to go on stage and be a rock star. He wasn't like that off stage. He wasn't a flamboyant guy. He was a very quiet, I don't want to say shy, but he was a quiet guy. Um, you know, when when the cars broke, he lived in a town, um, Weston, Mass., which is a suburb outside of Boston. And after the cars broke up, um, not too long after that, he sold his house and he moved to Vermont ironically, about an hour from where I live in Vermont. Um, he wanted to get out of the spotlight, you know, after all those years on the road and all that stuff they went through, he wanted to just chill out. So he went, he moved to Vermont people. And this is the last thing you'd think about Ben. He was like, um, he was a man's man. He was a woodsman. He liked to fish and hunt and, uh, hang out in the woods and he drove trucks and, he, you know, wore flannel shirts, and um, he was not a flamboyant rock star kind of guy, and he did not need to be in the spotlight. So when the cars broke up, um, he was out of music for, I mean, I didn't have to actually think about it to come up with the exact amount, but mm. for four or five years, something like that, he was not in music at all. And then eventually, you know, his music has been his whole life, he eventually got the itch again, but he didn't want to necessarily, you know, put another band together and try to get a record deal and put an album out and, you know, try to get back to the top of the heap, if you will. He just wanted to play for people. So he just, he started a band. Um, he obviously knew a bunch of musicians in, in and around the Boston area. So he found a couple of musicians that he was friends with and he just wanted to play. And he actually started playing little bars and clubs in Vermont. He didn't even, I mean, I'm not saying he didn't go to, you know, bigger cities and do shows. And after he got things rolling a little bit, he actually did put, you know, get a tour manager. And he actually did do some tours and, 
didn't tour the whole country, but he started, you know, going outside of the Boston area to do shows. But it was more just playing music for him than it was, you know, I got to put a band together and I got to be a rock star again. And that just wasn't him. Um, so he really laid low for several years after the cars broke up and just kind of recharged the battery, if you will. And he spent the last years of his life um, just making sure that he played music and played for people. Um, at the end, at the very end of his life, um, as you'll read in the book, he ended up joining a band um, called Big People. And it was sort of, um, it was a super group, if you will. Um, Jeff Carlisi from 38 Special was in the band um, as a guitar player and a singer. Um, you know, Canadian rocker Pat Travers uh, was a guitarist in the band for a while. Yep. Um, Derek St. Holmes, who was Ted Nugent's right-hand man for many years, was in the band. Uh, the drummer was Liberty DeVito, who was Billy Joel's longtime band uh, drummer. Um, so he eventually did end up getting in a band that was, you know, a, a more famous lineup, if you will. Mm -hmm. And they started touring around. Um, they were opening for Sticks, And they were just getting to the point and building up momentum where they were going to start writing some original material. Because when they were touring, um, how they did it was, you know, they played a few car songs. And then they would play a couple of 38 special songs. And they would pay, play a couple of Pat Travers songs. They'd do a couple of Billy Joel songs. So that's how they kind of did their shows. But after about a year or so, they decided that they were going to start, you know, putting, taking some of their own ideas that they'd all had done on their own, and they were going to start writing some original material and, you know, pursue a record deal. And, of course... Then Ben was diagnosed, and it, it all kind of ended, unfortunately. Mm -hmm. um, so that's how it kind of went. But, you know, like I, back to your original question, you know, Ben didn't have to have the spotlight. He just wanted to be a musician and play for people and make people happy with his music, and that's what he did for, for quite a while after the cars had broken up. You, you actually ended off on, on an area that I did want to ask about. Uh, the, his life after the cancer diagnosis was something that I'd, I'd love if you could just spend a couple minutes and, and uh, you know, kind of fill, fill the listeners in. Um, how did he handle that, obviously, huge, huge hurdle that, that came his way? Talk a little bit about, you know, Ben's final, final uh, time, if you could. Well, I tell you, um, all those rock stars that I just mentioned that were in Big People with him. Mm -hmm. I interviewed every one of them for the book. They were all gracious enough to talk to me. And uh, all those guys had been on million-selling million albums on their own and world tours on their own. So they were already rock stars in their own right. Mm -hmm. Every single one of them told me that they were in awe of Ben when they met him. They said, you know, they, they all got together, and Ben was, I think, the last one to join the band, the initial band. And they were all getting together, and, okay, we got to get a bass player. And, I don't know, somehow Ben's name came up, and uh, I think it might have been Pat Travers knew someone who knew Elliot. And they got in touch with Elliot, and Elliot got them in touch with Ben, and, they, and Ben was in Vermont. And these guys were based in Atlanta at the time, and they said, here's who we got, this is what we're doing, would you be interested? And Ben was like, yeah, I'll come down and talk to you. So he flew down to Atlanta, and there's a, part, there's a bit in the book where I talk about 
they met at this Thai restaurant, and they said when Ben walked in, they were all they all felt the aura. And I mean, we're talking about guys who are already rock stars in their own right. They've been around rock stars forever, and they were all in awe of Ben. <laughs> so that tells you something right there. Mm-hmm. Um, they also told me that Ben handled it as good as anybody could, and they said he was one tough son of a gun. Um, they, when Ben was diagnosed, they had just set up a tour. I don't know exactly how many dates it was, but they had set up a tour to be in some festivals, and I think they were still warming up for sticks. And all the guys like just said, that's it. It's over. We're going to have to cancel this tour. And Ben said, uh, no, we're not. We're doing this tour, and I'm going to play until I can't play anymore. And Ben went on the tour with them, and he did the entire tour towards the end. And, you know, I don't want it to get too negative or too sad. I mean, it's obviously a sad situation, but I won't get into too much detail, and people can read a little bit more about it in the book. Um, But towards the end, he was really hurting physically. And another thing, he you could tell he was ill. So here's a beautiful, handsome rock star that, you know, women have fallen over for years, and he was still going out on stage. He didn't care. He's like, well, I look different now, but this is who I am. He didn't go into hiding. He kept going. As a matter of fact, um, I interviewed a woman. Her name is Julie Schneider, and she was um, Ben's significant other at the end of his life, and she told me that the last few shows he did – they would wheel an oxygen tank onto the stage and it would be set behind his bass rig. And when he wasn't singing and just playing the bass, he would have to sit on a stool by his bass rig because he couldn't stand up for very long. And when it was time for him to sing a song, he'd take a couple big hits off an oxygen mask and go out and sing the song. And and the guys in the band said he'd pull it off like there was nothing wrong with him. And then he'd go back and sit on the stool again and play bass until it was time for him to sing again. That's that's what this guy did because it's all music was all he knew and it's all he wanted to do. The last thing I'll say about that is um, Ben got through the entire tour. There was only a couple of shows left, and then that's when um, I also mentioned this in the book that the cars, the guys in the cars, wanted to get together with Ben one last time and have a public appearance and do an interview. Mm-hmm. And they were putting out, um, the cars were putting out um, a DVD at the time. Um, a music-laden show was coming out on DVD. So they used that as a vehicle um, to promote that video and have Ben. So Ben left the tour. They were on the West Coast. He flew all the way to Atlanta. The whole band did this last interview together. He did that interview he flew back to the West Coast, did one more show, and then it got to the point where he physically couldn't do it anymore, and he only missed the last show of the tour. They had one date left in Texas, but he couldn't do that last one. And it just goes to show how much music meant to him and how much he wanted to make his fans happy that he did this entire tour and only missed one show. Wow. And mm-hmm. something that really captured my heart when I interviewed Julie, it was a really tough interview, and I thank her so much for, for sharing as much as with me as she did. 
she said that at the very end, um, when Ben was literally on his deathbed, he was mad that he didn't make it to that last show. And he told them, the people who were sitting around him at his bedside, that it was the first gig that he had ever missed in his entire life. That's amazing. <laughs> he, I mean, people get sick. You get a cold. You have the flu. You lose a, your voice a as a singer, right? You lose your voice. <laughs> yeah. He never missed a show. The only show he ever missed was the last one. And he's laying there about ready to pass away, and he's telling these people, I'm mad that I didn't get to that last show. Wow. <laughs> you, you, you just left people shaking their heads at how, how much integrity he had and how tough he was and how much he wanted to make sure – that he fulfilled his commitment to the band. Yeah. Um, pretty amazing stuff. Yeah, I think to highlight that, because I've seen that Cars interview. I believe it's 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 up on YouTube, right? Yeah. If you search it up. And I would recommend anybody, I mean, to, to compliment well, this last, story, that... to compliment this book, take take a look at him in that interview. It's hard, but it's a good view. And you know, for me, Joe, too, to just to kind of follow up with what Tom was saying, you know, last uh, week or so, we lost Eddie Van Halen. And I both know yeah. both both Sammy Hagar and uh, Michael Anthony never really got a chance to finally make peace with Eddie, and, and they know they wanted to, but it never really happened. How much do you think it meant for Ben to get together with those guys one last time and made sure that if there were any differences between them, that they got them kind of buried under the rug and said, "Hey, we're all we're all you know still cool with each other," because I, I would hate to think that that Ben passed without making peace with the guys. It was, it was very important to him. Um, and who knows, but, you know, maybe if he didn't leave that last show he did and fly all the way to Atlanta, I can imagine what it took out of him. Mm -hmm. Maybe if he didn't go to Atlanta and meet with the band, maybe he could have done that last show that he ended up missing. Mm. But it was important to him that he met with the band. And I, I interviewed a couple of guys in the band um, that are in the book, and, and they expressed to me how important it was for all of them to get together. Pretty amazing. Rick and Ben had not been in the same room together in like a decade. Wow. When they did that, when they did that last interview. And by the way, the whole interview, you can see it. I, I, I'm sure it's on YouTube, like you just said. Mm -hmm. But I was saying that they did. They were promoting a, um, a Cars concert that was coming out on DVD. It's called Live, Live at the Music Laden. They actually include that entire video, I mean, that entire interview at the end of that DVD. So if people get the DVD, you can actually watch the entire interview. Um, so they did include it in the DVD release. But I know, I know it was very important for him to get together with the guys, and I know it was very important. Um, both David Robinson and Greg Hawks expressed to me how important it was to make sure that they all got in the room together, you know, to spend some time together. I believe they spent, they were there for like a couple of days. Um, I think they all got together and went out to dinner and spent time together before they did that last interview. Um, something else about that interview, it was moderated by a Boston music journalist named Brett Milano. And I interviewed uh, Brett for the book because he, you know, followed the cars throughout their career. And when I did, when the book came out and I did, I did a, um, a book event in Boston and Brett actually agreed to be the moderator for my book event. Oh, cool. So I actually got to sit on stage with Brett um, and he helped me, you know, he moderated my Boston book event and uh, I actually 
I had to keep myself, you know, we're talking about the book, and I had to keep myself from wanting to ask him a whole bunch of questions <laughs> about, about his relationship with the band. Um, so, But he talked to me a little off stage about what that meant to him to actually um, conduct that last interview with the band and how much it meant to him to be a part of that. Um, so it was a pretty, it was a pretty big deal for the guys to make sure they all got together and, uh, sort of mend fences, if you will, um, before Ben passed away. The book is called Let's Go, Benjamin Orr in the Cars. Joe Milliken, the author, how can people get a hold of this book? Uh, Tom and I already have it, but how can people get a copy? Well, um, of course it's available through Amazon, Barnes and Noble, so you can get it online. Um, but I also have a website for the book. So if people are interested in, you know, looking at it a little bit beforehand, before they make a decision if they want to buy it, um, you can go to my website and it talks a little bit about the book and there's some photos and stuff there. And it's real easy. It's www.benorbook.com. And I've also got a Facebook page dedicated to the book. So someone can go on Facebook and just, you know, plug in Benjamin Orr biography and a page will pop up. But people can go to my website and take a look at some photos and, uh, there's um, some testimonials from some people that I interviewed for the book who read it and were kind enough to say a few words about the book. So people can go to the website and, and check that out and decide if they want to get it. And um, that's, how they can, that's how they can find their way to the book. Get the book, folks. Get this book. It's a wonderful book and a, a great story of the life of Benjamin Orr and the cars. Joe, thanks so much for doing this. This was a lot of fun for both Tom and myself who spend so much time uh, you know, focusing on the music of the cars and trying to replicate the sound that they had. Uh, it's so nice to be able to to share these stories with you and hear a lot about the life of Ben. Thank you so much for taking the time. Barry and Tom, I really appreciate uh, you allowing me to be on your show and your efforts in getting a hold of me. Um, I really appreciate it in helping me to spread the word about this iconic rock star and his story deserved to be told. And it is truly an honor for me to be able to be the one to tell that story. It's, um, it's been an incredible journey and a highlight in my life. And um, I hope people enjoy the book, whoever decides to go out and get it. So I really appreciate your time and having me on. It's been a lot of fun. There is Joe Milliken, and we encourage you to go ahead and buy the book. Yeah, it's a fantastic read. You know what? It's not a long read, but it's really entertaining, and you learn a lot. He does a really great job of, of just painting that picture of those early days in particular, really sang out to me. It's a great read. Absolutely. We're going to wrap up this show since we've got a Cars theme going on. <laughs> uh, our band Driven has just recorded a new song, which uh, we'll hopefully have a video soon. I think we're going to try to do another one of those, uh, what do you call, uh, virtually live videos. Mm -hmm. So we're going to do another one. And then when we do, this next song is going to be one that you'll hear. And this is our version of Touch and Go from Driven here on Sessions. All I need is what you've got. You're not All you know Is what you hear I get this way When you come in And I know It's gone Too far 
for today's show. Until next time, 
keep your feet on the ground, and keep reaching for the stars. I'm Casey Kasem.